everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. So, you know, you hear a lot of stuff that can be very fear-mongering, like that you'll never be able to get pregnant, or, you know, that you'll, um, you're automatically going to develop type 2 diabetes, things like this. And that's really, um, that's really misinformation. That's not accurate. And so, you know, there's a lot that we can do. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're talking about a topic relevant to millions of women, polycystic ovary syndrome. To help guide us through this complex and nuanced topic, I'm super excited to welcome my friend and today's guest, PCOS expert, Amber Fisher. Amber is a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist with eight years of experience working with PCOS and related women's health conditions. Through one-on-one work, group programs, and online courses, she has helped hundreds of women regain their health and vibrancy through functional nutrition, and we're so glad to have her here today. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you and I have a long history of podcasting together. I was on your podcast and Amber a day a few years ago, so I'm just really excited to have this podcasting reunion with you. Yes, same. I'm so excited to be on the other end too and get to talk about, you know, something that I just really am passionate about, which is PCOS. So I'm very excited to be here. I thank you for having me on. Well, we both love talking about this topic. So let's take it right from the beginning this time. You posted on Instagram earlier, um, earlier this year, and you were answering some questions. And one of those questions was, I was just diagnosed with PCOS. Now what? So will you share maybe your top three suggestions for someone who was recently diagnosed or they're really looking to integrative and functional medicine just for a different perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the beautiful things about the internet and Instagram, as we know it, as an educational platform, is that there's a lot of content about different health conditions. PCOS in particular has its own sort of niche. And that's wonderful. But when you're first diagnosed, it can be a bit overwhelming. Um, So I think the first piece of advice I would give is just breathe and take a step back because PCOS is not the end of the world. Like you said, it's incredibly common. It's something that a lot of women deal with. And there are a lot of solutions that can help you to, you know, live a very vibrant, healthy life. Um, So, you know, you hear a lot of stuff that can be very fear-mongering, like that you'll never be able to get pregnant or, you know, that you'll, um, you're automatically going to develop type two diabetes, things like this. And that's really, um, that's really misinformation. That's not accurate. And so, you know, there's a lot that we can do. I think the second tip that I would have is like, after you take a second to grieve the situation and kind of come to terms with everything is really start to work on cleaning up your nutrition. PCOS is such a, I mean, it's a metabolic disorder. It has such a strong tie to the way that we eat and the way that we fuel our bodies. And the most efficient way to actually improve your symptoms, and in some cases even reverse them, is to get your nutrition settled um, and under control. And I think that means different things for different people, right? Because we're all complex. But 
the fundamentals would be to start eating mostly whole unprocessed food as much as you possibly can and kind of get away from things like fast food, convenience foods, packaged foods and processed foods and things like that. So if you can just start kind of working on that, I know you're going to start to feel better. You're going to start to have more energy and you're going to start to, you know, um, experience less symptoms. And, um, if it's possible, I think it would be ideal for you to work one-on-one or to do some sort of a group program or something like that with a nutrition expert in, you know, who has experience with PCOS. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a nutritionist, but somebody who knows nutrition a little bit deeper than just, you know, a basic prescribed diet, I think can be really helpful because there's a lot of complexity with this issue. And then I think the last thing would be, you know, because there's such an insulin resistance component in PCOS, getting into a regular like workout routine, um, even just walking daily, and then also really working on your sleep and making sure you're prioritizing your sleep. Those are two pieces of the sort of PCOS puzzle that oftentimes we don't pay as much attention to, but they play just as big of a role as nutrition. So, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that's three things. You nailed it. That was a top three. So good. And there's a couple things that you said that I want to revisit and just really emphasize and highlight them. The first being you can absolutely get pregnant with PCOS. Yes. Right. We hear this all the time that patients come to us and they say, I was diagnosed with PCOS and I was told, I wouldn't get pregnant or um, I would have a very challenging pregnancy. And when we take that deep dive into the functional medicine model and we start bringing all of these body systems into balance, it is absolutely possible to get pregnant and to have a healthy pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. I think I don't, and I actually don't know where that sort of myth comes from, but I often hear women who tell me that their doctors have told them that, um, or that, you know, they've just read about that on, I guess, on blogs on the internet or something. The thing is that the, this research actually says that about 80, I think 80 to 85% of the women with PCOS who desire to to get pregnant and have a child will eventually be able to conceive. I would argue that that number might even be a little bit low. I think most women who have PCOS want to conceive and are within, you know, the right time frame of their life to do that will be able to conceive. Will they need fertility support? Sometimes, but not always. You know, it's not a guarantee that you're going to need to go through IVF or even Clomid or Fremara, although those can be helpful tools sometimes. Um, you know, I had an IVF pregnancy, so I know how that goes and um, there's no shame in that. But I think it is something that is um, for whatever reason, we seem to have this perception that it's going to be really, really difficult to get pregnant with PCOS. And the reality is that if we can simply get some eggs somehow, whether we're ovulating naturally or we're, you know, you're, we're using support to do that, there's a really high likelihood of pregnancy and PCOS and healthy pregnancy as well. So I think working on your nutrition and your underlying health, not only does that serve you for the rest of your life, because PCOS is a condition that you live with always, but it, um, you know, it serves you towards having a healthy pregnancy as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope anyone who's listening to this and maybe they're in the beginning stages of their PCOS journey, and maybe they've been told you won't get pregnant. I hope that they walk away from this episode with this message of hope and understanding what's possible. So thank you for kind of busting that myth. 
The second thing I wanted to revisit is this exercise piece because we um, just had a pre and postnatal coach on our show and we talked about how even a single bout of exercise can increase our insulin sensitivity for up to 16 hours. And that was mind blowing to me. And just always drilling back down into the power of our lifestyle and our modifiable behaviors that even a walk after meals, which I know that you're a big evening, like after dinner walker. Mm-hmm does so much for our insulin sensitizing abilities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think exercise really, so as a nutritionist, right, I've always been really fascinated with nutrition and I've kind of always had a little bit of a um, prejudice against, I guess, exercise, not in the sense that like, I think exercise is bad, but I always felt like people promoted exercises like this cure-all and didn't really talk enough about the nutrition piece. And so I talked a lot about nutrition at the exclusion of exercise, but the more I've dug into the research and really worked with people um, and myself in my own life over the last eight years, I've realized how important that piece really is. And it has to be a combination of those two things. You really can't do one without the other. And the cool thing about exercise is that it doesn't just modify instead insulin sensitivity, and it absolutely does, which is a huge part of of PCOS, but it it also can um, alter the gut microbiome, which I think is really cool. Um, It can improve mitochondrial health, which I know we're probably going to cover later on. So there's like so many things that just exercise can do, you know, and, and as far as um, a good like starting point for PCOS even if you're feeling very exhausted and the idea of going to the gym or something like that is too much for you. What the research really shows is that it's really about those like daily small activities throughout the day and just kind of like getting up and not being sedentary that matters more than going to the gym once a day. Um, so if you can set, I, I have like a little Fitbit watch, but you can set an alarm on your phone once an hour, just get up for five minutes, walk around. And then after meals, taking a 10 to 15 minute walk can be really helpful. Recently, I invested in a walking pad, which I'm actually like kind of standing on right now. Uh, it's not on, but I, I have it here. And that has been really helpful for when I'm doing work at the computer. Because instead of just sitting still, you know, I'm able to kind of get some steps in. So there are a lot of little ways to sort of hack it and just like fit exercise into your life without having to say like, okay, now I'm going to, you know, go do this intense activity every day. I'm not going to go to, you know, an exercise class every day or something like that. Yeah, super helpful to think about. Um, I I wear an aura ring and every now and then when I'm working at my desk during the day, it has a little notification and it says time to stretch your legs. And I'm like, wow, Uh aura, what a gentle way to say, like, get up and get moving, girl. (laughs) Move it. Yeah, my my Fitbit's not quite as gentle. It's like, you need to get 300 more steps this hour. (laughs) I'm like, okay, gosh. We're doing our best over here. (laughs) Thank you for highlighting this. Um, I always... I hope I get this right. Neat, N-E-A-T, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Maybe Ah, someone will Google that and fact check Uh me. But it basically means it's like the non-exercise class movement that you do throughout the day and how that can really support your metabolism. And I think that really speaks to what you're saying. Get up and move around. Even um, I posted on Instagram a few weeks ago, I live in a uh, a 100-year-old farmhouse and my laundry room is two floors down from where all the laundry accumulates. So (laughs) even carrying laundry up and down the stairs is such a great way to get your heart rate up and, I mean, get moving. Absolutely. And I think too, you know, all that stuff, I think that's the first place to start is really to work at gentle movement, 
walking and then being more active during the day. And actually that all on its own, I think will increase your energy levels, which then makes it easier for you to think about incorporating some other type of activity. I know a lot of the women that I work with, they have a, a lot of fear around going to the gym and being seen out, you know, in the gym and, and um, just like some stuff with that. And I think that's normal for a lot of us who aren't comfortable um, and things like that. But if you can find some sort of exercise routine that you really love or something, I mean, you can do it at home, but I, I find that it helps me too, to have like a class setting or somewhere where I'm making friends. And I just feel like connected to a community. It really helps increase the motivation to actually stick with things. So that would be, you know, the next thing to sort of work towards with, with, um, with exercise, but yeah, super important for everything PCOS related. Yeah. I feel like everything that we're talking about is the perfect lead into my next thought, which is about balance, this whole concept of balance. And we see this word used all the time, like work-life balance, um, hormone balance, a balanced meal. And if you're on the internet and you're looking and reading about PCOS, you'll always see hormone balancing for PCOS. And I thought, let's take a minute and unravel this a little bit. Like in all reality, what does that even mean, Amber? Yeah. So that's, and I think rightly so some people get a little bit annoyed at that terminology because it's a little bit grabby and a little bit like uh i mean maybe a bit of a misnomer right hormone balance but i think what i mean when i say that what a lot of us mean when we say that is with pcos we have a lot of hormonal inputs that are either too high or too low comparatively to what a quote unquote normal menstrual cycle would look like. And since hormones are a feedback loop and they sort of feed off of each other, when something is too high or too low, or it's out of range, it's going to affect the other hormones down the line in that cascade. And so that's going to lead into you having issues with, for example, ovulating. Um, so as an example for PCOS, what often happens is that due to the underlying sort of issues of PCOS, the sort of root cause issues like insulin resistance, chronic inflammation, adrenal dysfunction, all of that, we end up getting testosterone levels or androgen levels. So these are what we would call like quote unquote male hormones, right? And they're too high um, in relation to our other hormones. And what that does um, is that makes it very difficult for your ovaries to actually pick a, an egg to sort of grow and make into our dominant follicle. So we end up just getting this situation where everything's sort of at a standstill and we're getting, instead of getting, you know, follicles that can be ovulated, we're getting what we call the cysts in PCOS. So we've got all these little cysts and they're just immature follicles is all it is, but it's because that testosterone level is too high, but then that feeds into, if we're not ovulating, then we're not producing progesterone because progesterone is produced when we, um, when we ovulate from that space where we ovulated from in the ovary. And so if we're not getting progesterone, what can happen then is that we can start to develop um, estrogen levels that are too high in relation to the amount of progesterone that we have. And then that sort of can, can feed into a lot of issues. You know, one of the things that those with PCOS are at higher risk of is endometrial cancer. Um, and that can be related in a lot of ways to low progesterone and, and out of range estrogen. So these are the kind of some of the hormones that are out of balance. 
Oftentimes in PCOS, we also have um, luteinizing hormone levels that are too high. And that can make it difficult when you're trying to like track your cycles, like using OPKs, you know, they're not accurate in PCOS when you have high LH levels. And so all these different hormones, they all play a very specific role with each other. And when they are not in the correct ranges, it throws everything else out of balance. So when we're talking about balancing hormones, that's primarily what I mean is let's get that testosterone level at normal. Let's normalize it. Yeah. Ooh, that was super helpful and jam packed with little gems. I think really for me, it comes down to to function. Like we want your hormones to be in a level that your body can do the things that it needs to do. Mature a follicle, pick that golden egg that you described, ovulate that egg, and then have progesterone that reaches high enough levels to support that endometrium so that you can implant a little embryo if, if you do conceive. So I think that that's, I, I try to wrap that around um, like the hormone levels and really marry it to what am I expecting to happen physiologically? And when we have these imbalances, those processes are disrupted just like you described. So I think if anyone is out there Googling and they're seeing hormone balancing for PCOS, now it's a little bit more clear what we typically mean with that phrase. I'll go ahead and guide us towards a topic that I know you and I love to talk about, yes. and that's gut health. We're both always talking about gut health. It's really so intricately related to hormones. So will you give us a little, a quick synopsis of how gut health and PCOS are connected? Right. Okay. So this is a passion subject of mine because I do think that there's a, a pretty wide understanding about the connection between insulin resistance and PCOS, right? Um, but not so much of an understanding of the connection between gut health and PCOS. And actually gut health plays a really big role in, um, in our health and our symptoms in PCOS. So some of the ways that it impacts us is, uh, those with PCOS are more likely to have something called dysbiosis and dysbiosis, uh, just means it's an imbalance. There's that word again, in the levels of bacteria in our guts. So we know that in our guts, we have something called a microbiome and it's like this collection of bacteria and other organisms that um, do a lot of important stuff for us. About 80% of our immune cells live there. Um, there's a lot of things that it can do as far as um, determining how insulin sensitive and things like that we are. It's pretty fascinating. And in PCOS, we know that we often have imbalances there. So we have maybe too many of the quote unquote bad bacteria relative to the good bacteria. And what that does is that increases the risk of us developing issues, um, Two of the big issues that I that I talk about a lot are, are leaky gut. And so that is um, kind of microscopic tears and sort of the lining of the gut that make us more likely to, to develop food sensitivities. Um, and then uh, issues with beta-glucuronidase enzymes, which is a really, you know, long phrase. But essentially all that means is that when we have too many of those enzymes, uh, our body has a difficult time getting rid of extra hormones and metabolizing them. And so it can repackage them and sort of bring them back into our body to be used again. And this is where a lot of those uh, estrogen sort of overloads in PCOS can come from. So if our gut is out of balance, uh, it can 
create this situation where we develop more inflammation. And I find that in PCOS, um, we do call it a chronic inflammatory condition. Most of the inflammation that I see comes from some sort of gut health issue. I think a lot of this sort of like first step in PCOS, uh, in my experience often has to do with working with a body that is, has developed already sensitivities to several foods. And so there's like an inflammation sort of coming from that. Um, there's, it's much more likely for those with PCOS to have, um, irritable bowel syndrome. I think the, I think the statistic is like 40% of those with PCOS have been diagnosed with IBS. Um, but I would argue that I think that number, I mean, that's who's been diagnosed. I, I have never actually met somebody with PCOS who didn't have some level of dysfunction in, in their um, gut, as far as with their digestion and, and all of that. So there's a lot of connections there, but really what's happening is when we have gut health issues that feeds into that PCOS inflammation. Um, and then the inflammation can have the same effect that having insulin resistance can have. It can also feed insulin resistance. And so they can sort of play with each other. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the sort of the pathway there. Ooh, so much to dive into. I love talking about leaky gut. I mean, I think this is so important for PCOS, but uh, so many aspects of fertility. Um, and I remember, gosh, it may, maybe several years ago now when I read this first paper that opened my eyes to this connection where if you have leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability, you can have proteins that translocate across that intestinal barrier, enter your systemic circulation, where we get this systemic inflammation that includes the ovarian tissue. And we just talked about how important it is to produce progesterone as part of our hormone balance, right? And so when we have this inflamed tissue, we're not ovulating as regularly, we're not making this robust progesterone. And when I could visualize this connection between our gut health and the way that we ovulate, it was life-changing for me. And I'm sure that you feel the same. And just in how you might approach a condition like PCOS that's typically filed under like hormonal or even metabolic, which is maybe even kind of progressive. But now we see that there's this whole gut health connection and we can treat it. We know what to do. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of functional medicine is it's very much, it's like, start with the gut, you know, and, and the gut plays a really big role in PCOS. I don't think it gets enough attention really. Um, and I know, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, when I first heard about leaky gut, I thought, is this, is this a scam? You know, I think a lot of people thought it was kind of hokey, but the research has really played it out. I mean, it really is a real thing. It impacts so much. Um, and it makes sense to me as a nutritionist, as somebody who's always been drawn to food, it makes sense to me that a, a digestive organ, you know, would play such a big role in our health. Because if you think about what we do on a daily basis as human beings, like what do we do more than almost anything else? I mean, besides breathing and maybe drinking water, which I guess I would classify in the same um, category, we eat. And so it makes sense that what we're using to fuel our bodies would impact these sort of deep um, systems of our body. And 
to your point about PCOS being a hormonal condition, that's one of my big frustrations is when people are talk about PCOS as if it's just like, it just sort of pops up out of nowhere. It's like, oh, well, you're, you're just born and your hormones are just wrong. It's like, no, I mean, it comes from somewhere. I mean, functional medicine, functional nutrition is all about figuring out the connections between systems. And, and, um, it just, I don't know, it just makes sense to me. I don't, I, I, I'm excited to see how that sort of thought process is kind of expanding out into the world at large because, um, yeah, the gut is everything. I mean, we have to start there. The gut is everything. So on that topic, uh, I'm sure you have a million favorite tips for supporting gut health. So will you share just maybe a few of your top picks for supporting a healthy gut microbiome? Sure. So I think um, I have sort of a system that I like to follow when I'm working one-on-one with somebody. And I always start with trying to figure out what is potentially increasing inflammation right now. So I think there's kind of like two phases of managing the gut with PCOS. And the first phase is like a reparative phase where we're kind of trying to just clear the air. And the second phase is building up on, on all the good stuff. And so in that first phase, I really like to figure out, does this person have any food sensitivities? It's very common in PCOS to have food sensitivities mostly because of that dysbiosis connection, right? And so there are a lot of common allergenic foods that can be contributing to PCOS inflammation. If that's going on, I do like to manage that at the beginning. That's just a personal preference as a practitioner, but I think it makes a big difference. Um, That work can be a little bit tricky and you can run into some roadblocks if you're trying to do it by yourself. So if at all possible, it's best to kind of work with somebody who's trained in that. um, So that, especially if you have like a history of you know, disordered eating and things like that, because elimination diets can be a little tricky. Um, so if you're not in the space to kind of work on that, that's okay. I think what you can start with at home is eating more anti-inflammatory and prebiotic foods. So um, what does that mean? A prebiotic food is a food that's going to feed the good gut bacteria. And so the gut really loves sources of resistant starch. It really loves, um, fiber. It really loves kind of a lot of the things that we don't probably eat enough of in our diets and, um, anything that, you know, we can't digest our gut bacteria kind of digest it and break it down. And it's like food for them. So increasing the amount of fiber that you eat, adding more seeds to your diet, um, some specific prebiotic foods would be things like, you know, apples, onions, garlic, Jerusalem, artichoke, a lot of different foods actually have prebiotics in them. Even oats are a good source of prebiotics. Um, by the time this comes out, I may actually have shared like a, a graphic on this that I have, but it, there are lots of different foods that you can increase that will increase um, the good gut bacteria because it provides food for them. So I think working on that and then also just working on reducing inflammation in other ways, like eating more olive oil, eating more um, fatty fish, those things can also help the gut microbiome um, to be a little bit calmer, which kind of decreases that sort of sensitivity to, uh, to certain foods that are a little bit harder on the system. But I would definitely say that if you're dealing with PCOS and you're having a lot of digestive issues, particularly um, lower digestive issues like diarrhea and, and constipation and stuff that you might want to think about looking into food sensitivities, because I've seen it be a total game changer for people. 
As you're talking, I'm picturing all these meals that I can build around these foods that you're talking about. And um, as a Pacific Northwesterner, I'm imagining this beautiful salmon filet with some roasted squash and onions and garlic and olive oil liberally drizzled over all of it. Yes. I mean, you know, that that's like kind of the Mediterranean diet, right? Which I think is one of the best studied diets for PCOS. And it's a place where when people are like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what kind of diet, you know, to do. I sort of say, okay, just, you know, start there. Like that's a good place to start. It needs some modifying for PCOS. I'll be honest. It needs a little bit of modification, but it's a good place to, to start. And there's really a lot of delicious food when you train your taste buds to like more whole unprocessed food, you really open up to a lot of the beautiful flavors out there and um, you can make some really gourmet stuff. I'm a total foodie. So I promise you, this is true. Guaranteed tried and true. You've done it. You've been there. I have absolutely been there. I, I grew up not eating very many uh, vegetables, eating a lot of fast food. I had to really train my taste buds and it took me probably a good seven years to even like start enjoying salad. Like it was, it was a hard process. So I have a lot of sympathy for that. And I find that a lot of folks with PCOS deal with food aversions and things like that. Um, and that's a real struggle. It can be overcome. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. As we're looking to make lifestyle changes and behavior modifications, I think it's super helpful to have something, some kind of why and motivation to anchor into. So the million dollar question when we're talking about gut health, in your experience, when you're working with your clients and you're supporting their, bringing their gut into a more balanced, there's that hot word again, bringing their gut into a more balanced state, do their PCOS symptoms get better? Absolutely, they do. Um, And in fact, I have helped so many folks who had a lot of resistance with their symptoms to any other modality that tends to work well with PCOS. So they were working really heavily on insulin resistance. They were doing all the right things. Um, and still they could not lose weight. Nothing would budge. They were not ovulating, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we start working on the gut. We figure out the connections between foods that are increasing inflammation right now. We start working on building up good bacteria through prebiotic foods, probiotics, all that kind of stuff. And I've seen a lot of people have their, you know, their, the dial starts to move on the weight issue, um, which then helps with their insulin resistance. It's like, it feeds into a lot of other things. They start ovulating. Um, and overall they just feel healthier. They're making less facial hair. I mean, it cascades into so much. So it, rather than throwing a lot of things at like facial hair is a good example, rather than throwing a lot of supplements at, at facial hair and saying, well, let me take an androgen blocker. Let me do this or let me do that. If you can go back further, deeper into the body and really impact that gut health system, um, you can see it cascade into all of the PCOS symptoms, improving those because they're all connected to each other. So yes, the answer to your question is 100% yes. 100%. This is a worthwhile investment. It's beautifully said. It is worth it. I, I like how you said, we'll keep, keep basically peeling the layers away until you get to that root, go deeper, stay curious. And I think that's so important really with any condition, but PCOS 
too, because as you've mentioned, there are so many body systems that are contributing and it looks, it looks different for everyone. So we've talked about gut health. Now I want to move us into another favorite topic. You and I have a lot of favorite topics that we share. So we're just going to talk about another one, which is mitochondrial health. This is beloved to us and it's super relevant to PCOS. Will you tell us a little bit about this connection between our mitochondrial function and what's going on with PCOS? Yeah. So, and this is an area of research. I was actually scrolling through PubMed this morning. I'm like, let me see if there's anything else that's come out that I've seen recently. This is like an emerging area of research because there is some thought that PCOS at its core may be um, partially a mitochondrial dysfunction issue. So the mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. You know, they help make energy for the rest of our body. And um, in PCOS, we know that there's some issues with, with, uh, the copying of, of mitochondria and DNA and stuff like that. And so what that essentially means is that we're going to have higher levels of oxidative stress. And it also, they have found a connection between mitochondrial dysfunction and PCOS and insulin resistance and making us more insulin resistant and possibly going back the other way as well. The insulin resistance sort of increasing the mitochondrial dysfunction. So there's a lot of layers to it, but what it means for your day-to-day life is higher levels of inflammation due to higher levels of oxidative stress. Um, And the cool thing about that, I think, is that nutrition, again, can play a really big role in reducing oxidative stress. Um, There are a lot of foods that we call antioxidants, right? Or that include plant components that are antioxidants. And those antioxidants help directly fight that oxidative stress. And so um, increasing the levels of antioxidants in your diet is really helpful. This is a big reason why my go-to nutrition approach for PCOS is not to go full keto or something like that. Um, While some people do benefit in the short term from reducing their carbohydrates quite a bit. And if you've ever done this before and experienced benefits, you'll probably know, you know, why that happened because it's bringing your insulin levels down and it's keeping your blood sugar a little bit more balanced in the long term, a diet like that does not feed the beneficial bacteria. It doesn't have enough antioxidants. And, um, so in the long term, it actually can be harmful, I think, um, except in specific situations. So it's better to increase the amount of plant foods in your diet, increase the amount of fiber at the same time that you're increasing protein and things like that. So that you're stabilizing your blood sugar, but you're also eating a lot of antioxidants, things like blueberries. I mean, like blueberries is like such a super food. And if one were to listen to some of the things you hear on the internet, you know, oh, it's fruit. So it's sugar. So we can't eat it. Absolutely not. Blueberries are a great source of fiber. They're a great source of antioxidants. There are a lot of foods like that. So I recommend including a lot of those things. And then, you know, there's supplementation that can help with that as well. NAC, you and I both have a, a strong love for NAC as a supplement. I mean, that that's a great way to reduce oxidative stress and PCOS as well. Okay. So I think you may have covered some of your faves already. We're thinking antioxidant rich diet, flood your body with all the colors of the rainbow in your plant foods. It's a great way to get broad spectrum antioxidant coverage. You mentioned NAC and acetylcysteine, excellent antioxidant supplement that's super great for um, mitochondrial health. Any other fave supplements that you have? 
I do. Um, so NAC would probably be my, that's my favorite PCOS supplement. Cause I think that it covers so many of the different areas. Like it does help with insulin resistance, but it mostly helps with that, like inflammatory cascade, reducing, um, reducing the oxidative stress. And then, um, it can improve egg quality. Like it's just, it's just a fantastic thing. And we've got research studies that show, you know, reduced facial hair, reduce, you know, better, um, more consistent ovulation, things like that in PCOS when, when NAC is taken regularly. So, um, but as far as other supplements for PCOS, there's two that are coming to mind. The inositols, of course, huge. Um, everybody talks about the inositols for PCOS and for good reason, there's great research to support it. Ideally, you want to get that 40 to 40 to one DQ, uh, myo to dequiro inositol ratio. So that would be in something like a product like ovazitol that you hear a lot about, or there are some others as well. Um, and that's going to help with really keeping your insulin levels balanced and it can help increase, um, the, um, the frequency of ovulation as well. And then another thing that, I mean, it's not technically a supplement, but it is something that I take as a supplement would be matcha. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I love your matcha. I can't talk about anything without talking about matcha. I mean, matcha is, it's again, it's a super food. And so what matcha is, is it's powdered up green tea leaves, essentially. Um, so you want to make sure that you're getting it from a high quality source. Matcha is one of those foods that, um, there are a bit more problems with like lead contamination and things like that. So make sure that you're, you're getting it through a, a high quality source. Um, but what matcha does is it, um, it, it's a very powerful antioxidant. And so it can um, support that mitochondrial health at the same time that you're having a delicious beverage. So, you know, what's not to love? I mean, I, I have a matcha every day. That's a win-win supporting our mitochondrial health. It feels luxurious. Um, I love that. I just think that mitochondrial health, we've already talked about so many things, even exercise great for supporting and like yeah. moderate intensity. It doesn't have to be high intensity interval training, moderate intensity exercise. So good for our mitochondria going on the 10 to 15 minute walk. Like you just said, yeah. brilliant for supporting our mitochondria. And then the antioxidants, the supplements, another one I'll just throw into the mix is CoQ10. That yes. might be one of my favorites too. That's a great one. I use that one a lot in, in PCOS. So that's a fantastic one, especially when we're working on fertility, I think, cause it's such a great egg quality supplement as well. So it just like covers so many bases great for your exactly. cardiovascular health. Yeah. I love that. Um, there's Omega a paper threes. That came... sorry, I interrupted you. No, you're fine. <laughs> so I was just saying omega threes is another one. I mean, it, but like we could go on and on. There's so many, Oh, SPMs. That's a favorite of mine for PCOS. Yes. Our, our specialized pro resolving mediators Mediator. love all of these. Um, there's a study that came really out of the IVF setting, um, a couple of years ago, but the paper said that the success of an embryo is really dependent on the mitochondria's ability to produce energy. And I was like, okay, that is such a bold statement. And I uh -huh. truly believe that. And I think that really anchors us into why supporting mitochondria is so, so, so important for PCOS to, to make our symptoms feel better, but also that egg health piece that you talked about. Um, it's just really, oh, absolutely. Benefit. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. The entire episode, we've touched on these little nuggets of insulin resistance because it's so 
crucial to talk about in terms of PCOS. And you do such a beautiful job educating on this topic. And I think we've um, talked a little bit about how insulin resistance affects fertility because of the way that it causes ovulatory dysfunction. And really, if we're trying to get pregnant, like step one, we, we have to be ovulating regularly. And we've talked about some different dietary approaches. And I want to bring up uh, a bit of a controversy because I just feel like let's go there. This is the time and space to do that. What I want to ask you about is intermittent fasting because this is such a hot topic. It's all over the internet. And to be fair, there are there's great evidence in terms of longevity, longevity medicine being so prevalent in our pop culture right now. And intermittent fasting is certainly a a viable intervention, but what are your thoughts about intermittent fasting specifically for those with PCOS? Intermittent fasting is such a complex topic and it has a really nuanced answer for PCOS, because as you said, there is a lot of research that supports it. And then I think there's also a lot of lived experience in those with PCOS that does not support it. And I really do think it it comes down a lot to where you are in your PCOS journey to your age, um, whether you're in your like childbearing years or your postmenopause and kind of what like the main sort of drivers of your PCOS issues are. So my always what I say about insulin resistance is if you are not dealing with a high level of adrenal issues, um, which would be things like, you know, sleep dysfunction, energy issues that are not, you know, related to food, but they're just kind of like a chronic sort of energy issue, things like that. I think intermittent fasting can be a, a, a great tool. I don't love the way that the majority of us sort of do intermittent fasting where we're just kind of skipping breakfast. I think that for most folks, uh, most women that can be kind of damaging for the hormonal cascade. Um, because I think it does increase sort of that cortisol response. It's stressful on the body, I guess is what I mean. Um, so I don't recommend it doing, doing it that way, but I do think kind of following some of the latest circadian rhythm research, if we're going to implement intermittent fasting, Perhaps we could do that by um, shortening our eating window uh, in the evening rather than in the morning. And so starting with a good breakfast, eating lunch, and maybe eating an early dinner and kind of stopping eating at that point. Because I do love at least a 12-hour overnight fast for PCOS. I think that's like really crucial. Um, So, you know, there are ways to kind of experiment with it and see how your body tolerates it uh, without sort of just, you know, living on fumes and like skipping breakfast. Now, if you are dealing with a lot of insulin resistance issues with your PCOS, if that's kind of your main driver, I have seen intermittent fasting be very effective for folks with those kinds of issues. And I also see a lot of benefit for postmenopausal women um, doing intermittent fasting. I know personally I'm postmenopausal and I practice intermittent fasting fairly regularly because it, it's, I, my body runs better when I do that. And so, um, everybody's just a little bit different. If you are dealing with a lot of adrenal issues, you have trouble sleeping, um, you're very stressed and you're, or you're in a space right now where you are actively trying to conceive or something like that, I would recommend probably staying away from it, uh, just because I think it can be harmful for those areas. But I don't know. I'm curious your perspective on it too, because I actually really 
I really respect your opinion on those kinds of things. So, oh, I'm aligned with everything that you just said. A hundred percent. I definitely. I think we can make the case for intermittent fasting in the right person, but that's that's really the takeaway: is that it's not right for everyone. And I think working with a qualified professional like yourself is so helpful to try to figure out: is this the right fit for my body? I also love that you brought up the circadian pattern component. We're learning so much about our circadian rhythms, circadian medicine, and how our light and dark cues really relate to our, the, our ability to produce antioxidants within our body, our insulin sensitivity. So I think that that's a brilliant connection and I'm super excited to see where the research takes us, but I'm very aligned with your approach. And I okay. appreciate that <laughs> you answered that because it's a tough question. It is. It's- it's a hard question because it, like, like I said, I mean, there, there are, there are pros and cons. I mean, there are arguments for it and against it. And I think both sides are valid there. Um, and so it's hard to kind of walk that balance. It's really hard when you're trying to create, as you know, content on the internet, that's going to resonate with people and educate, but at the same time, um, you know, not be too, I guess, too basic or it, not, not nuanced enough. Um, yes. And that's, you know, one of the struggles that we have as, as educators is like, how can I educate about this topic and tell the truth about it without, you know, just like going over everybody's head with these things. But the circadian rhythm stuff is really fascinating. I've been reading some really interesting uh, stuff on like high dose melatonin and PCOS and, and, you know, some connections there with, so I, I, I'm very interested to see what will happen in the future with that circadian rhythm research. In one year, we're doing a follow-up on circadian medicine for PCOS. So everybody get, um, spring 2024 on your calendar. We're doing it. Yes, let's do it. Amber, you've touched on this a little bit over the course of the episode, but I just wanted to very intentionally bust a myth while we're together. And that's that if you have PCOS, you can never eat carbs or enjoy your favorite foods again. We have to bust this myth. I mean, shout it from the rooftops. Will you talk to us just briefly about how you might combine foods to lower the impact on our blood sugar so we can still have our favorite things? Yes, absolutely. You don't have to actually give up anything for PCOS um, with the exception of if you have a food allergy or possibly are working on, you know, healing a food sensitivity at the moment, but there's no like long-term reason to avoid any one food for PCOS, uh, including, you know, it's fine to have a little bit of sugar in your life from time to time. Uh, There are some foods that we want to limit more than others, but carbs really get a bad rap. there are, there's so much variety in that word carbohydrates. I mean, vegetables are carbohydrates and, uh, carbohydrates are also like our main sources of prebiotic fibers and, um, you know, antioxidants and things like that. So we have to have some carbohydrate in our diet. And I would argue that for most folks with PCOS, we need probably more, um, carbohydrate than what you would hear in some circles on the internet. So what you can do is to reduce the impact that carbohydrates can have on your blood sugar is you can increase the amount of protein and the amount of fiber that you're consuming. So um, one of the issues in PCOS, especially early on, when we when we do have a gut that's kind of not um, in the right balance, is that we tend to um, have more issues with blood sugar spikes, you know, being higher and, and um, more damaging. And that kind of leads into symptoms. We can reduce blood sugar spikes by 
eating our carbs with a meal. So the first thing that I always recommend is trying to consume maybe three or four meals a day, um, like three meals and one sort of meal snack, I call it like a mini meal, right? So instead of snacking and grazing all day long, we're, we're combining our foods into meals and we're having a protein source, a fat source and a carbohydrate source, um, and a source of fiber as well. So having about a palm sized amount of protein with everything you eat and proteins would be like, your know, your animal foods, animal products, things like that can also be something like tofu or, um, high quality soy having that alongside your veggies, maybe your seeds or something like that as your source of fiber, fibrous carbohydrates, and then a smaller portion of starchier carbohydrates, things like potatoes and rice and wheat and grains and stuff like that. Um, and those things combined together will slow the release of sugars into your bloodstream, which will then help your body to not make such a high insulin spike. So that cascades later into you having more balanced hormones because you're not getting too much of any one thing. So, it, I mean, it's a simple solution, but it really does work. And that's really the first dietary step that I usually recommend to people besides switching over to eating more whole foods, like start adding enough protein and enough fiber to your meals. Absolutely. So approachable. Just, I, I sometimes say no naked carbs, yeah. but then the possibilities are limitless. And Amber, this brings us to my final question of the day, which I always like to be fun. And with my nutrition besties, I love this to be a kitchen challenge. So I have a kitchen challenge for you today. Now that we know okay. we can have all of our fun foods. So here's your challenge. Are you ready? Yes. You have to choose three ingredients to make a PCOS friendly snack for sitting by the pool with your friends this summer. What are you making? Okay. This is tough. Um, <laughs> this is a tough question. I think we can't go wrong with like some sort of charcuterie board situation, right? Love. I'm a millennial and we love a good charcuterie board. Um, I, I'm a big fan of like the combination of some dark chocolate with berries and maybe cheese, something like that. I think if I could add a fourth ingredient, I would do like some really high seed, like seeded crackers. Yeah. Um, and maybe a little peanut butter. Okay. I know that's five, but you know, something like that, just where we're getting like lots of different yummy, um, antioxidants, the cheese has protein, peanut butter has protein. Um, dark chocolate is a great source of antioxidants and a healthy fat. And then, you know, our berries are a great source of fiber and antioxidants. So, and it's just kind of light and fun to sit by the pool and eat things like that. So fun. I'll give you your five ingredients. So everybody, if you make your pool charcuterie, take a picture and tag us on Instagram so we can see your pool snacks. Amber, it's been so fun to be with you today. Thank you for coming on the show and having a podcast reunion with me. It has been a true joy. I really appreciate it. On behalf of our whole team, thank you to our listeners for being with us. And of course, a big thanks to our show's producer, Paola Martini. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.